The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. And we're welcoming you to the fourth installment of our Ghost Light Prelude Editions that we have instigated this season. The Carol and Jeff Show. The Carol and Jeff Show, where we just talk about the operas that are coming up. Of course, I do this live at the Capitol Theater before every production, but um, this is an alternative in case you don't have a chance to make it for an hour ahead of time for the live conversation. And it's one that I get to participate in. Jeff doesn't participate in the other one. That's true. So it's far less exciting. No one knows what I look like, Carol. They're not sure I even exist. (laughs) It's best. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Jeff's a very handsome man. A real face for podcasting is what they say. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, we digress. We do. So, um, well, we're already silly, and that makes sense because we're going to talk about Pirates of Penzance yeah, today. Yeah, and What's, that's, that's the, that's, this is the final opera of the this season. This is the final opera of the season. We've had a lot of comedy this season, which mm-hmm. I think is kind of nice because we're coming out of a time where comedy was in short supply. Yeah. So I love that we are finishing with just a giddy, magical, charming rendition of this Wonderful piece. Well, since you won't let me be on stage with you for the preludes, I'm going to be an audience member today. So I got I've got some questions for you. Fantastic. You ready? Bring it on. Um, so why operetta? I mean, big opera companies are doing this more and more. You see this in big houses across the United States, probably in Europe too. It's it's becoming more common to include at least one operetta in a season. What's what's that about? Yeah, that's a great question. We have not done operetta of a, Gil- a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta on the Capitol Theater stage right. in the history of Utah opera. We did have a series of summers where we performed different Gilbert and Sullivan works up at our summer home, Deer right. Valley Music Festival. And those were a lot of fun, but it never made it to the main stage. This particular production of Pirates of Penzance is getting performed everywhere. It originated, I believe, in Atlanta. Gosh, I hope I didn't just say that wrong, but it's been performed in Atlanta and Kansas City. I mean, it's just been everywhere. And um, in fact, much of our cast has done this exact production already, so they're very familiar with the set. Oh, like a traveling show. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it is. You know, it's um, it's interesting. You know, you have about the the four people who are known for doing the major general, and you know, you get one of those. In fact, we had to replace our major general who took an a different engagement who couldn't mm-hmm. manage to make everything work. So we were able to find one of the definitive major generals on the major general list, so to speak, yeah. uh, Hugh Russell, to come in kind of with about two weeks' notice. And But, of course, he's done the role so many times that he just falls into it sure. like a sock. So back to your question. Uh, first of all, it's fun. It's comedic. It's wonderful. And Pirates of Penzance in particular is very operatic in nature. It requires – the highest trained singers. You can, I mean, obviously there are many, many amateur productions of Gilbert and Sullivan that happen all over the world. And it's one of the most popular amateur theatrical genres out there. Yeah. Uh, it, it inspires a level of devotion that is unlike any that I've seen. I'm with um, the Gilbert and Sullivan players all over the place. Right. And so they're like Harry Potter fans. Exactly. Ex- possibly even more rabbit, but <laughs> right. they do the cosplay the whole bit. Yeah. Uh, and, I just think that um, it's appropriate for an opera company to put it on because of the need for these excellently trained singers. I and mean, the, the the aria of the first act of Mabel, Poor Wandering One, is as virtuosic as anything you mm-hmm. could hear in a bel canto opera. It's got the cadenzas. It's got the high note. It's got the staccato, the uh, all of that um, that um, filigree. Right. It's just in English, and it's 
very topical. And so I think that kind of brings it in some people's mind, maybe a down a level. Uh, the other thing is, there is such a fan base for Pirates of Penzance that it doesn't make sense not to offer that to our audience. Uh, people are going to come out of the woodwork to see it. I am confident. Yeah. And people came out of the woodwork to audition for the chorus. People who've never done the Utah Upper Chorus saw the announcement for movement auditions because the chorus is, uh, is tasked with moving, doing uh, simple dance moves. They're not doing ballet of it by any means, but they have to have movement chops. And so we actually had a movement component to the audition, and I didn't know half the women that showed up. They were Gilbert and Sullivan fans who just came in and wanted to be considered. In fact, one of our choristers uh, married a gentleman that she met doing a production of Pirates of Penzance, and they've named their cat Mabel. So this is the level of fandom that we're talking about. You see these power duos in uh, opera, not as much as you see them in music theater. Like, but they're there. Know, they're DePonte there. and Mozart. DePonte and Mozart. Stahl and Strauss. Stahl Strauss. Exactly. So talk about Gilbert and Sullivan as this incredible sort of convergence of talents and how well, lucky we are to, that they found each other. And you cannot actually talk about the two of them without talking about Richard Doily Cart. Right. The amazing producer and impresario right. who was an in- he integral part. He was the matchmaker. Yeah. yeah, he was the matchmaker. And he was the person who also could, if there was an argument about carpet in the theater, <laughs> they eventually built a theater, yeah. the, the, the Savoy Theater, yeah. to present the Gilbert and Sullivan works and um, and also other right. works of this genre. And right. the, that's the, some of these operas, our operettas are called the Savoy Operas mm-hmm. because of the Savoy Theater. He was really London. trying to build an English language comic opera tradition, right? And he chose these two guys basically as right. his vehicles. And they weren't... They were a, they were great foils to one another, you know, and we're going to delve more in this. And we have a now, if you listen to the regular podcast, not just the preludes, we're going to be interviewing our maestro for this production. And he's going to, of course, have a lot. He's a big Gilbert and Sullivan yeah. fan. I can't wait. But um, you had two men with very different personalities and they were different in age. One was a little more um, outgoing. One was a little more introverted. One was a little bit more, you know, calm. One mm-hmm. was a little more... Mm-hmm. Um, Fiery, and they were just a great pairing for this. And uh, yeah, I think it really did create they they an amazing partnership that has left a legacy on the genre of opera or music theater, whatever you want to call it at this point. I think people would be surprised how actually kind of old these pieces are. You've you called them topical, and they do seem fresh in a way that not all opera does. When was this written, this piece? 1879. Yeah, the premiere was December 31st, mm-hmm. 1879. But the thing is, humanity hasn't changed since 1879. I mean, yeah. we've, we've become technologically more advanced, and we've yeah. become socially different, and different issues are out in the forefront. But the political satire is still topical. Sometimes it's tweaked to actually mirror current mm-hmm. events. I mean, we've all heard of... Um, Coco the Executioner from Mikado and his List song and mm-hmm. how it's very traditional to add in uh, local or um, current Con- contemporary yeah. names into that list of people he'd yeah. like to put to the executioner's blade. We don't have a thing like that in Pirates of Penzance, but the, they're just ideas that still match. Um, the idea of Nouveau Riche, mm-hmm. um, the major general is purchasing a title. And, you know, that's not, un- I mean, yes, we don't have the same classism that the British had at that time, but we do have classism in this country. Oh, for sure. And so all of those things can resonate. The language can be a little tricky to connect with, but it's 
um, so well executed by all of these cast members. It's really fun to see actually opera singers do this much dialogue. And that's not always a gift for every opera singer, but the <laughs> cast we've assembled is very facile with it and are able to emphasize and, and um, make sure you understand the meaning of what they're saying, even if it's a strange Victorian term. You know, you know, I've never thought about asking you this, Carol, but does, do these pieces get presented in other languages on a regular basis, or do they get translated? You know, I can't say. They do get translated. I cannot think through a list, but I will say that um, Maestro Wado was delighted to share that there is actually a Yiddish version Fantastic. on YouTube that you can watch. So uh, I can't name every language it's been translated into. Um, I'm sure it's gone into the major languages like German or German, uh, French, you know, French and Italian, the Romance languages. I don't know if they would sort of uh, lend themselves to right. the the music, but of course they should have been. Yeah, I, I, they should be accessible because I think that's the thing is this should be accessible to people in their native language. Totally. There's but this but English is so rhythmically. Specific specific in this way that it's it's hard to imagine other languages having exactly the same impact although i'm sure it's been done and tried yeah i think that what was the t- the quote that um gary said there's a there's a song there's a trio that the ref- the refrain is an act two trio is a paradox a paradox a most ingenious paradox and it's like I'm Meshagos, I'm Meshagos, is the refrain. It's, so it's perfect. So it, does, it yeah. works perfectly. It, it Meshagos, yeah. and I apologize to Yiddish speakers for that butchering of the pronunciation, <laughs> uh, but it perfectly fits in the place of paradox. Yeah, we, but, we butcher all languages equally on this show. <laughs> At least I do. Carol's much better. I mean, I've studied many a language, but I apologize that I've not studied yeah. Yiddish pronunciation. So one of the things I know you'd like to talk about is all of the copyright problems this piece had and how weird its path to publication was. Yeah, you know, it's not so much about the publication as the the performance. The first performances had to be carefully planned to establish copyright. And they were and Gilbert and Sullivan were actually trying to establish copyrights in the United States, which is why this was premiered in New York City and not in London, as so many of their other works are were. But uh, there was a whole issue you know, people could go to a performance of something and they could, and there were people that could memorize what they heard and they would go home and they would write out the entire score just by memory and suddenly it would just be distributed without any control by the creators. And so this was a common thing that would happen. Um, we've heard stories of people hearing a Brahms symphony, a famous, uh, you know, a, I think, wasn't it Berlioz that heard one of the Brahms symphonies and then like went home and wrote it out? I don't know that story. If there's some, some, I'll have to organize who those people are. Well, I think the Allegri Miserere is that. We wouldn't even know that piece had someone not heard it in a church and brought it out to the world by memory. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so if someone remembers the exact story I'm referencing, please um, feel free to share that with us. Yeah, definitely. Uh, But so it was a thing that would happen back then. And so then once the, the... the piece was out there, you couldn't control performances, you couldn't control rights. And, you know, copyright law is very different now than it used to be. Mm-hmm. But uh, they actually had organized so that they could try to obtain rights in England as well. They organized a casual, almost reading of pirates that happened the day before the premiere in New York, so that by doing the first performances in England and in the United States, they were able to sort of. Um, stake out their territory for this piece. So what they did is they took, in England, they took a, a, a company, a small company that was in a small town, I think it was called Painton. Uh, they were performing HMS Pinafore, and they did the same 
costumes. They just put on pirate scarves and things like that, little prop bits. And some of the stuff, they hadn't even received some of the musical numbers. So like the major general song for that uh, British premiere was done in recited prose as opposed to the music. Another funny anecdote about the music, actually. So... um, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan went to New York to start their process to work in uh, October prior to the December 31st premiere. And when he arrived in New York, he discovered that he had left all of his Act One musical sketches at home in England. And so he had to recreate all of them. And so there's some actual he, – he did what many composers did. Rossini did it mm-hmm. and just borrowed from himself to kind of reconstruct that quickly. But some of the music wasn't finished until, you know, 7 a.m. orchestration the day of the premiere. We've heard those stories over and over, and he was almost Rossini-like in his uh, quickness of creating that music. You mentioned how a company like Utah Opera is maybe the most appropriate kind of company to bring this piece to life because of what's required of the singers. Um, What are some of the other sort of grand opera themes and tropes that are present in this piece and make make it appropriate for this stage? Yeah, there are so many homages to different operatic moments. I mean, even just the idea that Frederick was supposed to be apprenticed to a pilot, mm-hmm. like a boat pilot, and, sh- and the woman who was charged with apprenticing him misunderstood and heard pirate instead of pilot. Pilot. Oh. <laughs> pilot. Pirate. Oh, interesting. Um, and I love that some of the duets have kind of a Verdian quality to them. The um, big duet of Frederick and Mabel in the second act has a, you know, a recitative and then mm-hmm. a slow section and then a, con- a connecting recitative and then a brilliant cl- conclusion. And that's just an obvious opera structural um, paradigm. Mm-hmm. You know, we see that all the time in the bel canto works. And then you get these great choral moments. The homage to the great opera choruses is nowhere more evident than in the second act number when the foeman bears his steel with the policeman and then the daughters of um, the Major General Stanley. Uh, it starts with this marchy set thing, and then there's this sort of lyrical line that overlays it. And that's so much like the triumphal march of Aida. Yeah. So it's just obvious throughout that he had, that Sullivan musically had huge knowledge of current operatic traditions. He was a music editor for a a publishing house, and so he was encountering all of these pieces as he was working on that. And um, he couldn't help but parody them or honor them, however you wish to describe it, in the music that he wrote. So the border between operetta and opera is very porous, as it always probably was. Yeah, yeah. and this is probably the most operatic work he has. So what are some of the highlights of this piece? I mean, what are some of the things that people, if they don't already know it, they should be watching out for? Well, I mean, I can guarantee, and to anyone who comes to the show, they will hear at least one musical number that they say, I know that. Of course. It's just impossible. Yeah. It's it's permeated our public consciousness, and we'll talk about that a little bit as we go through the list. But, I mean, even just starting out with um, the big song to the pirate king, I am a pirate king, he is. It's just um, you're going to walk away from this. You know, you're going to be humming all of those tunes. Yeah. yeah. One of the songs that is most strongly in every facet of public consciousness is the Major General's famous patter song. Yeah. I am the very model of a modern major general. I'm sure everyone's ears perked up. Yes. They know that or some version of it for sure. I mean, there's something. And some of them are political. There are satires upon satires of it. I won't even go into some of those because we don't want to have a political bent on this show. But there is uh, even one from March of 2020 that's I am the very model of effective social distancing. (laughs) You mentioned the pop culture references to this song, Carol, and I 
made a point in my article that one of the ways to judge a piece of culture is by its contemporary progeny. It's maybe a dubious way of judging a piece of culture, but by that standard, this music will last forever. So, I mean, what are some of these, what are some of these references that exist today? Well, let's, I've got a little list. Should we run it down? <laughs> uh, there's Tom Lehrer's Element Song. Many of my chemistry colleagues learned the periodic table of elements with that. Scrubs. There's a version of it in Despicable Me 3. The Muppet Show. Family Guy. Babylon 5. Veggie Tales. Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, you stole mine. Frasier. The Simpsons. Two and a Half Men. Doctor Who. Saturday Night Live. Animaniacs. Video games Mass Effect 2 and Mass Effect 3, both of which I've played. Home Improvement. It's mentioned in Hamilton. Takes place in a Geico commercial. 90210, believe it or not. And the list goes on. The, the genre of the patter song, uh, Utah opera audiences will be most familiar with it from the bel canto works, particularly of Rossini. Right. And the idea is you just have lots of text delivered incredibly quickly. The term patter comes from the prayer, the Our Father prayer, Pater Noster, right. which uh, over the years in the liturgy just became recited almost at a breakneck pace. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just a Latin speedy chant. You wrote this great article in the program notes, and I learned something new about an earlier ancestor of the Patter song. Tell me about that. Well, yeah, I did this article that I call Motor Mouths, that it's in the program. I encourage people to read it before the show. And it's about Patter song and how that manifests in this piece and how it it has been a part of, you know, uh, theatrical singing for centuries, really. And I talk about how even before the Pater Noster reference, there, there's, there's Greek DNA in this uh, concept. Uh, the plays of Aristophanes had this dramatic technique that he called, uh, that was called parabasis. And it was basically these non sequiturs where the chorus would address the audience directly in the voice of the playwright on various moral or philosophical issues. So it was a breaking of the fourth wall. Breaking of the fourth wall, speaking directly to the audience. And part of this process was, and now I'm about to butcher some Greek, Yiddish and Greek, we're um, equal opportunity butchers on the show. But there was this this one debater that did what was called pnigos, and it basically loosely translates to choking. And he would just rattle off these breathless, literally breathless, like he wasn't supposed to breathe during these long strings of very intricately ordered words. And that is the thing that has survived into today as Patterson. That's the, that's the real OG version of this, um, of this effect, of this dramatic effect. And the Pater Noster, I think, is great, not only because of we can all remember doing things in in church by rote and the sort of the the sort of detached boredom that can sometimes be associated with that chanting, and but the word Pater, it's so onomatopoeic, it's perfect. Like, it sounds like what it is. Yeah, I just love that aspect. You know, as long as we're talking about vocabulary, I want to teach you all out there listening another word. It's quad limit. Do you know that word? Yeah, I know it. I wouldn't have dared say it, though. Uh, no. <laughs> well, do you dare define it, or shall I tackle that? You do that? it. You do it. So a quadlibet is a musical composition, essentially, where you layer several melodies in a very effective way. Mm-hmm. And that figures um, quite uh, in two moments in this particular opera. We have this wonderful moment where Frederick and Mabel have just met, and they want to go off and canoodle a little bit. Mabel's in the presence of her sisters, and back in Victorian times, it was unheard of that a woman should walk away with a, stra- a man, let alone a strange man. Yeah. And so the, the sisters are saying, they have this recit about, what should we do? We want to support her in this romantic endeavor, but in, someday we'll be in the same position. What should we do? And so they decide, let's talk about the weather. So they have a, a choral patter song, How Beautifully Blew the Sky, and uh, that goes on, that's introduced. And then on top of that is this wonderful 
waltz that's sung by Frederick and Mabel, this very um, romantic waltz. So, and it's all in uh, one large beat. So you have da 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 And when they come together at the end, it's just charming. Lucky you for getting to hear me sing, by the way. Everybody in your preludes gets to hear you sing. I finally get the chance. Indeed. And then in the second act, the number when the foeman bears his steel, where the police are trying to um, get up the nerve. They're terrible policemen. They're very frightened policemen, and they're trying to get up the nerve to attack the pirates. And then the women come in and have a different melody. The daughters all come in to sing this melody to encourage them. It's almost like a suffragette hymn. It has this mm-hmm. um, wonderful vibe to it. Uh, I, I know we are on a, a subject of quad but I have to tell a fun story. Um, Arthur Sullivan was a church musician along with um, the other things that he did. He was really a renaissance man in the music world. As many musicians, he had to have several jobs to make ends meet. That's still true. It is still absolutely true. And he uh, was lamenting, as is still true, the lack of tenors and basses yeah. for opera choruses or operetta choruses. So what did he do? He was he was at a church, St. Mark's, I think was the name of it, and it happened to be next to a police precinct. So he went over and recruited policemen to come and join his lower voices, tenors wow. and basses. And they were delighted to be a part of this. They were some of his best choristers. And so this whole uh, scene of policemen, singing policemen, is just kind of a gentle homage to the policemen that he worked with at his church, I think. You have a great story about Gilbert, too. It's maybe not a great story, but he died in a very interesting way, didn't he? Yeah, he died trying to uh, saving a woman from drowning. I think um, I can't remember if he died in the act of swimming or if um, we can clarify this, of course, by research, but he um, or if he, you know, had was overexerted. Yeah, but, but complications from front compl- yeah. complications from the rescue. But I mean, you know, it's an interesting story. That, Amazing um, to see that he's was a compassionate person. Yeah, yeah, selfless in a yes. way too. Yeah. Well, that was an inspiring, but maybe a little depressing digression. So let's yep. get back to your let's list of up. highlights. <laughs> yeah. What are some other things that people should be excited about? One of the tunes that you will definitely recognize as an American sort of collegiate song comes from the number with cat-like tread, which is kind of hilarious. The pirates are sneaking onto stage and they're the least sneaky pirates you've ever <laughs> run into. So there's like the, the, the orchestra has these, is punctuated with these sudden forte chords. It's the least thing like cat-like. So the pirates sing with cat-like tread, da-dun-da-dun-da-da. And then another group of the pirates come in, another set of the voices, and they sing, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
the original story was meant to be the robbers. And instead of pirates, they were just going to be thieves. And then it just was much more interesting to make them be pirates. And it offers the opportunity to have a boat on stage, which is always fun. Fun for the crew. But um, the, the police have a story where they kind of lament the life of a policeman. And it's really quite it's funny because the way they're, they're – it's like a call and response song, and the responses are not always complete. So it's um, kind of comic in that moment. But it ends with, a policeman's lot is not a happy one. It's it's said that uh, Pirates became such a part of everyday life in London after its premiere that uh, people would greet the police on – the strange policeman, just anybody, any Bobby with his truncheon and his high hat, and would say, oh, policeman's lot is not a happy one, is it? You know, so it was kind of a little catchword. I wonder if they got tired of hearing that or they're just like, oh, no, that's that again. And then um, I mentioned Poor Wandering One. This is an interesting fact. Uh, the current edition that most people use of Pirates of Penzance ends with a reprise of Poor Wandering One where they say Poor Wandering Ones. And it, refres- it refers to kind of a, a, an unexpected piece of information that we learn in in the final moments. No spoilers. Right, no spoilers. But the original ending was a reprise of the Major General songs where song Major General's song where everybody in the cast had a couple of those powder verses. Right. Another thing I completely forgot about and this is a common thing that happens in Gilbert and Sullivan operas or operettas as you wish to call them. <laughs> there is Often a moment where everything stops and you have a madrigal or some kind of big choral moment in uh, Pirates of Penzance, it's in the first act where um, they have a hymn to poetry. It's just a page where it's a cappella, beautiful choral singing. And this is another result of Sullivan's church music roots. Mm-hmm. He actually wrote like 47 hymn tunes, including Onward Christian Soldiers. If you know that one, if you're a, uh, an evangelical churchgoer, you've heard that that sort of martial hymn. Um, most of the hymns I looked at, and they were not tunes that I recognized as an American churchgoer, so they may be more rooted in English churchgoing. But that choral ability translated so beautifully to these moments, and he always wanted to highlight his cast with this choral moment. Is it is it plot based or is it a non sequitur like the Greek parabasis? Is it Oh, it is a little bit of a non sequitur. Basically, um the the pirate king says, "What is life? You know, we have this life where we we pillage and do all things although they're really terrible pirates and that all becomes revealed why they're such terrible pirates yeah. during the course of the show." Uh, but he's saying, "We, you know, although we live through strife, what is life without a bit of poetry in it?" And then they all stop and they sing. The entire cast kneels and sings, Hail Poetry. It, and is, it is kind of like that. Then. It's yeah. kind of a non sequitur, yeah. but it's really beautiful. And, it, and yes, it, it's definitely a breaking of the, the, the fourth wall because mm-hmm. it's not like this poetry that they're referring to doesn't have anything to do with the show. Before we turn people loose into this experience, I want to I want to ask you some questions about this piece in this moment because I wonder – maybe this wasn't conscious, but do you think it makes sense – at this moment in 2022, where maybe maybe just briefly, but masks are starting to come off, is is laughing the exact right thing to be doing right now in a theater? I mean, there's bound to be some scientific reason why it's a super spreading activity. <laughs> I don't know. It's not as super spreading as, you know, every, poor singers. So they were so I maligned I know. by that. From and, day one. But I... 
I just, I think that our soul needs it. I, mine does. I went last night, I was able to hear um, Brian Stokes Mitchell with mm-hmm. the Utah Symphony. And yeah. he did such an amazing performance. And it was so full of joy. And I thought, and charm and laughter. And he told stories about him, you know, that made all of the musical numbers mean so much more. And I thought, this is what we need. We're missing this connection. We're missing laughing as a group. And I think the corporate experience of seeing theater is so important and can be such a part of our societal healing. Mm-hmm. That sounds very highfalutin, but I think I'm not overstating it when I say that. I think that um, the world needs healing at the moment. Uh, we're all dealing with some level of trauma, whether Absolutely. it be, you know, whatever it may be uh, in whatever level. And I think that the act of being together in a group and having those experiences, it was certainly healing for me last night. And I think that people who come to Pirates of Penzance are going to f- really experience that. And I think the timing couldn't be better. Well, Carol, thank you, as always, for suffering through all of my questions. And thanks to all of you for listening to this, our last opera preview of the season. If people don't have tickets yet, where do they need to go, Carol? Yeah, go right to utahopera.org and uh, tickets are available for the five performances at the Janet Quinney Lawson Capitol Theater beginning on Saturday, May 7th, Monday, May 9th, Wednesday, May 11th, Friday, May 13th, and a matinee Sunday, May 15th. We look forward to seeing you there. Until next season, I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. For questions about the show, you can reach us at ghostlight at usuo.org. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera Season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.